Hello, welcome to Analyse This, Mental Health in Film and TV. I'm Dr Catherine Nunes, Katie. I'm a clinical psychologist and a director of Applied Psychology Solutions. Outside work, I'm known as Boo. And so for the purposes of that being the host of this podcast, I'm Dr Boo. Because what I want to do here is to create a bridge between my work as a clinical psychologist and medical legal expert and my passion for film and TV and accuracy in the way that mental health and neurodiversity and mental health professionals are portrayed. Each episode I welcome a new guest, sometimes a mental health professional, but not always, and we will choose a film to analyse, formulating and discussing the aspects of the film relevant to mental health and psychology, checking for accuracy and sharing our thoughts. Please do watch the film before you listen to the podcast, as there will be spoilers. We're currently in lockdown in the UK, and I thought, what better time than this to invest a bit of time into this venture? And so I welcome you to my first podcast with guest Kendall Bond, a behavioural psychologist. Today, over a drink and over Zoom, we discuss the film Hunt for the Wilder People. So, Hunt for the Wilder People. Kendall, Mm. what do you think of this film? Oh, I just, it was what, do you know how I watched it? It was one of those really weird um, experiences where my mum had come down, I'd had um, an operation and my mum had come down and she watches some pretty crazy films um, and she was looking after me and she said, oh, I've heard about this film called The Hunt for the Wilder People. And I'm like, oh gosh, here we go again. What, what madness am I going to be watching? And I watched this film uh, and I absolutely fell in love with it. I didn't realise at the time it was by um, my favourite director. So uh, Taiki Watiti, I think it is, his name is. It's hard, sometimes I struggle, but um, he had done What We Do in the Shadows. And, oh, I just, the charm, the, the humour, scenery, the relationships, it, it blew me away. And I've seen it probably about 12 times now. Wow, that's a lot of times. I've seen it twice. Yeah, I, I think I, you know, I, 12 times is quite a lot but it's it's quite a lot in terms of the thing that really really struck me about the film in the context of mental health is the labeling how if you look at it from a kind of thinking back to my systemic therapy type days from from when I was doing family work this idea that everybody has a role and they all fulfill this role because it's perpetuated by the people around them and I think when Ricky first turns up at Bella's place he is so labelled I mean it's the label continues because I think that the social worker says the label several times is he's a bad egg history of offences and re-offences too long to list and then she lists them graffitiing and littering and smashing stuff and burning stuff and breaking stuff and stealing stuff and throwing rocks and that's just the stuff we know about and he's labelled and rejected by everybody and then he meets this amazing Bella who doesn't reject him um, and, and just kind of takes him on with this massive sort of good humour, which actually that's one of the things that my 10 year old found quite difficult was the, that he, she, he was very much, but she's body shaming him. <laughs> yes. And she kind of does. But <laughs> you ate all the pies, doesn't she? <laughs> you're, you're the guy who ate the guy who ate all the pies or something along those lines. But because actually she takes him i think maybe there's something there about she's taking him at literally face value i don't really care what the social workers just said you're a big guy 
And that's all she's focused on is this kid in front of her. And in some ways she is, she's not trying to protect him. No. Um, she, she's just trying to form a, a connection with him. She's trying to just, like you say, say what she sees rather than hold on to this, this label. Um, and I think that's, a, that's probably quite rare for him. that Everyone's always judged him and she's just saying it how it is. Yes, that's really true. And, and this, that kind of goes on as well, doesn't it? The way that uh, you wonder how he might have been parented by foster carers in the city versus the way that she parents. She's very, she's very hands-on and she's very, um, just do it, learn by doing. Yes. You yeah. know, and, and, you know, tries to run away and she doesn't berate him for that. She just entices him back with some food. Yeah. And there isn't, you know, when he then comes back and he's, she, oh, I thought you were going to run away. And he says something like, oh, I forgot something. And there's always a reason why he's come back. And she just, she just lets him be himself. And I guess that what he then does from that labeling, that role point of view is that he starts to develop his own sense of self away from these labels that he's been given by everybody else that he's ever had. Yeah. And, and I think also, absolutely, the labels that he's been given by other people, but also the, the labels that he's tried to live up to in order to have this protection. You know, I think there's a quote that he says of, um, what is it that, uh, I didn't choose the Skuck's life, the Skuck's life chose me or something. And I yes. think that might be like New Zealand for being a player or, or something like that. But it was... I'm not even sure he knows what it means, but he's living up, trying to live up to these labels. And he is trying to portray himself as a young boy who is in control and is protecting himself and there's no harm that can be done to him. And so there's all these labels and then there's his own that he's trying to put his shields as well from there. Absolutely. And then that kind of comes out, I think, a little bit when he's with Heck and Heck just says, well, you have to, you're going to have to go back. You're going to have to go back to welfare yeah. and they will look after you. And it's at that point, I think you see Ricky start to break some of those barriers that he's put in place down. He says, there is, there's, they're not going to look after me. There's nowhere for me. There's only Juvie. There's no more homes. But Amber, who is obviously somebody who had had a really abusive previous foster home and you start to see that actually that bravado, which I think looks a lot like bravado from the beginning, it looks like a lot of bravado, but this is the first time he's actually sort of showing that, that he's not really what he's portraying himself to be. And I think that's when they start to really discover who they are, both of them actually at that point. I, I, I absolutely. And they help each other discover who they are. They do. And that's really interesting because then you've got heck who had already been labeled by the state because he'd already been labeled because of his past. And so he then behaves in that very reticent, very withdrawn way. And Ricky helps him to redefine himself because he just pesters him and pesters him and pesters him. (laughs) And just keeps boundaries. No boundaries. (laughs) Just keeps talking until he actually opens up. But all the time while they're redefining themselves and relabeling themselves, they're being labeled again by the media and by the social worker and by the police as these guys on the run. And so the labels just perpetuate. They just continue. You can't get away from them. It's that whole man is free, but everywhere he's in chains. It's you, you, 
just keep being pushed back down by the labels. And I think what the idea of that sense of the time they have when they're on the run, it, it's almost they're, they're grieving, they're redefining themselves in the dynamic that, you know, they've very quickly been thrown into. And there's something there about being allowed that time to redefine yourself, which we don't get in our day-to-day life when we've got a label of a mental health issue or trauma or when that is your everyday experience you you fall into it and you feed into it naturally or it's incredibly hard to break away from it yeah what they have is this wonderful time without the oppression of the labels yeah that are constantly there and you know as, as, as psychologists that's what we're trying to allow people to do in the space that we have with them is to have that time when you don't have to fit the narrative that other people have created for you or that maybe you've created for yourself as a protection. And they have in that state a moment of vulnerability. And I think that that's what, as you say, as psychologists, I would hope we offer is a safe space to be vulnerable. And in the film, for me, that most vulnerable moment is where, I think it's where Ricky runs away i think for the second time when he actually is running away and he tries to heat his hot water bottle over the fire and it breaks my heart i just it's just so sad because it's the thing that bella had it's the thing that made him feel that somebody really cared and he tried to look after himself and it's that that kind of those moments of vulnerability that i think help us as viewers to start to see that this is a really a really vulnerable child which is what I think the whole system isn't seeing they're not seeing a vulnerable child they're seeing a difficult child and I don't know where the heck ever really sees him as being vulnerable because I think by that point they've both started to sort of redefine themselves in Mm. in their relationship with each other but it's just yeah I find that really really interesting that idea of being given that space to be vulnerable to be to, to need other people I think is really powerful. Yes. And, and, and actually both of them, she, interesting that she, you know, she says that she's a rescuer and he talks about that, you know, she, she brought me in and she rescued me. Mm. She does a lot of, um, to come on, you can come and have some breakfast, then you can run away. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. of this kind of, I'm not caging you in. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not telling you where to go. You're, you know, and then she sings that lovely song, that birthday song, which is really very well composed. I think. <laughs> So I read a thing, and I don't know if this is true, but it was because they didn't have the license to happy birthday. You know, that the license to happy birthday had, hadn't run out then. And they made that on the spot. That's what I heard or read. Um, oh, I hope that's true. I quite like that. I love it. And I sing that all the time when I'm like singing happy birthday to people. I just... <laughs> you say you're the trifecta. <laughs> that's not my name. <laughs> yeah yeah I think there's something about her where she's I don't know she's just very honest and I think that that's what that's the first thing we're seeing about her with her her comments on his weight is that she's just being very very honest that's kind of like what do you want to do are you hungry that's a silly question isn't it look at you (laughs) we don't say that to people but what's really interesting I think is that watching it with my 10 year old he was more aghast at her saying that than all the labels 
that the social worker gave him. Wow. And I think that there's just, there's something about that. She was just saying what she saw. Yeah. And not saying it in a judgmental way, just you're a big guy. Yeah. Whereas the social worker is setting him up to fail. The minute she steps over the threshold of the house, she sets him up to fail there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and she's also setting Bella and Heck up to fail. Yeah. Because it's like, nobody can handle him. You can't handle him. Nobody can. And, yeah. and, it's, and she's just, she just deals with it so well. She doesn't take it up as a challenge or anything like that. She's just like, well, let's, let's just see. He's, he's home now. He'll be okay. And it's like yeah. she's been waiting for him her whole yeah. life. He's home now. And yeah. I think that that experience of having a home can be so, a true home, even if it's for a short period of time, can be so profound. That's true. And, and she definitely, I wonder, I wonder about her rescuing Heck and then rescuing Ricky and the decision that she's obviously made to, I've, I've done Heck, <laughs> the best I can do with him. Because she says that when she first met him, she was, he was a scruffy white drifter that smells of methylated spirits. <laughs> <laughs> and clearly he now doesn't. Um, and one would assume that she wouldn't have got Ricky placed with her if he did still smell like methylated spirits. <laughs> well, you'd hope. One would hope. But then it makes me then think that, d- did she feel that she'd done everything she could, that she'd finished with Heck, and now she needed, she needed more, she needed something else? Yeah, and you uh, uh, kind of, I suppose that's it, isn't it? Is it a project or is it a gift? You know, or both. And yeah. it may be that she met Heck she allowed because what what i love about their relationship is they're so different yes and she doesn't really are i mean it's just phenomenal and one of the things i love about healthy relationships is when people accept each other for who they are yes yeah because actually you don't need two identical people to get on that's (laughs) always the worst (laughs) you kind of need that balance and they clearly balance each other very very nicely yeah, definitely. And so maybe it was that she had met Heck and supported him, or maybe it was that she realised that that is the way to connect with people. Um, and that's a gift that not many people have, yeah. is just by that unconditional love and positive regard or, or whatever it might be. Yeah. So I'd like to know the premise of why she was formed to become a foster carer. There's something in there as well about she doesn't know where she comes from, although she pretends to. But it makes me wonder what her background was that has her so able to foster care the way that she does. Yeah. Yeah. Because actually the things that she does are not the kind of things, as far as I'm aware, we would train foster carers to do. Um, <laughs> she, she gives Ricky a knife uh, the first night. There's a knife for killing monsters. <laughs> Yes, how amazing! Sharp knife, there's a lamp and some cats, and oh, by the way, there's a knife to kill the monster. And then says, "I can't imagine what you've been through. I can't imagine it was easy, but you're here now, and this is home, which as you said before." And I think that it does make me wonder what her background has been that gives her that skill base, that that trust in others by giving them him that space it allowed him to be able to challenge his own narrative that's what the whole film i think is about it's about challenging the narrative that you hold which then brings you on to towards the end when he then ricky then meets 
the other family about how they approach him because the father of the young girl that he meets on horseback he thinks that Ricky's the best thing ever he takes selfies with him and, and again he's not labeling him as being a fugitive particularly he labels him as being a very cool famous person yes yes for whatever it doesn't matter what you've done you're just on the news so you're famous exactly and, and, that, and that in itself is cool but also there's something there I think about the idea that that father isn't really a very grown-up person either because I think when I first watched it, I was like, is that the dad? Is that the brother? Yes, yes. Comes across as childlike. Yes. Um, and she's quite sensible and mature for her age. And that's, she's obviously taken maybe quite a, a matriarchal role. And it is true. He, he kind of, yeah, let's take selfies together. It, there's almost a fraternal relationship that's very quickly formed rather than, a, hey, hang on a minute. Let's, let's get you some help. You're according to the news, potentially a vulnerable at-risk child. Um, instead, they just have a great time. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then the other character that we, other than the people that they meet in the, in the huts, um, who clearly don't have anybody's best interests apart from themselves, um, <laughs> you then have Sam, very separated from society. He's the one who... There's a wonderful bit where they say, um, how can we get out of here? He says, jetpacks. Do you have a jetpack? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> from our point of view, as psychologists, he is a highly stereotypical, paranoid, reject from society, doesn't fit in, you know, believes that you need to wear a tinfoil hat. You know, he's a really, really, really stereotyped type character to throw in amongst these... Actually, characters that I didn't feel were very stereotypical. The social worker, maybe, is a little bit in... in uh, <laughs> it was certainly a caricature of some people's yes. ideas of um, social working. Uh, and the police officer is also maybe a stereotype of somebody who's just a bit, bit of a buffoon. Bumbling small town police cop, isn't he? Yeah. He doesn't really... Yeah. Until the end where he stands up for himself a bit, he doesn't really have much backbone next to the social worker who is yeah as you say as you know she is a highly stereotypical sort of evil social worker yes yes the child down no child left behind yes so she keeps saying meaningless statement because actually by not leaving you behind i I don't really care where i take you i'm just not leaving you behind Ah, it's so true it's so true the amount of times we hear those kind of those kind of statements blimey yeah just don't mean anything at all but I mean there's something there's something about I think they they call him Psycho Sam or he calls himself Psycho Sam possibly and he is this kind of conspiracy theorist type person which I love I love a conspiracy theorist I think that they are I do I think that's the most fascinating thing it's conspiracy theories what is it that makes you so fascinated by by them because I think that in the face of so much evidence to the contrary, it's holding on to that one belief that at the same time as bringing you this feeling of empowerment must also be bringing you masses of anxiety. So any, th- any conspiracy theory that we have out there from, 
you know, man didn't really land on the moon to, you know, 9-11 through to now, through to how the whole kind of COVID was made in a lab and accidentally released or purposefully even. Those conspiracy theories just must make you feel really anxious. Mm. Because mm. you're being, if they are true, then you are being lied to all the time. By the very people that you're meant to trust. Yeah, exactly. And, and I can see how in the face of that, the only way to regain control and a feeling of power is to just go and live in the bush like Sam. <laughs> Put on your tinfoil hat. Just remove, go off grid. And yeah. yeah, that's a really good point. That There's a sense of the, the anxiety it must breed. I think what I love about your um, approach to it is so compassionate. I know that I... Um, I get very uh, upset and angry. No, not angry. Sometimes angry, frustrated at people who talk about stuff around that because it feeds into labels that are unhealthy and unhelpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so then I get into, uh, I think I almost go into a panic state of trying to evidence-based, you, you know, let's use evidence-based information. That's all we can. I'm, I'm panicked that the science is going to be taken away. And so I love your compassion to connect with them and their needs. I think I go panic public health message and, and you go, wow, yeah, how anxious must you be to be- if you believe that? Yeah, I'm, just, I'm just very curious. That's a good old psychology term, isn't it? I'm very curious about <laughs> why you feel like that. Curious about your irrational thoughts there. I just, I find it really, really interesting how somebody has gets to the stage where psychosan gets to where he gets to the point where he's wearing a steel colander on his head yeah you know what must have happened in your life and in your interactions with bureaucrats and the government to make you believe that the government could intercept your thoughts if you don't put some metal on your head and yeah. it's alarming that, that people do get to that state. And I think that the, the biomedical model that drives a lot of mental health services still for people at that level doesn't have that trauma-focused approach that I think those people could really benefit from, where we look at actually, okay, you're coming from a position of fear and anxiety. And rather than trying to label it in a medical term, mm maybe we need to look at you and formulate what's happened here and, and help you break this down. I just, I find it interesting then though, that when you look at him, Sam, and then you look at the father whose name I wish I could remember, TK, TK, the father of the young girl. Yeah. You look at those two people who are the other adults in this world. So the adults in this world are TK, they're Sam, they're Heck, who you know, barely really looks after himself and really doesn't have the capacity, as far as he's aware, to look after anybody else. You've got the, the men in in the huts that they find who clearly only have their own opinions and beliefs and self-centered motivations. And you have the social worker and the buffoon policeman. Those are the adults in Ricky's world. Yeah. <laughs> it's very disturbing if, if this is indeed what perhaps what a child sees actually they see people who are self-centered or they see people who are um 
you know, slightly crazy or people who just want to push them down or people who withdraw from them all the time. If you don't have the bellas of this world, mm. they don't have anybody to, to model themselves on. And Ricky clearly hasn't up until this point. And then he loses the one person who he has, who is trying to give him that modeling of a responsible adult. Although even then, you know, the sharp knife on the bedside. I'm not quite sure how responsible I feel that Bella was. Well, she she met with it. I think if she'd have been setting those kind of boundaries, there would have been such a resistance and discord because she wouldn't have been working in his language and his terms. You know, that that's the whole thing of going into somebody's world to understand it so that then you can support them out of it. Same with the conspiracy theories. Let me come into your world rather than just trying to pull you out of it. But what's also coming into my mind as we're talking about it is the impact of somebody like that, even if it's a short time. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because I think the first time I watched it, the first few times I watched it, I was so heartbroken that this poor boy had finally found home. Mm-hmm. You know, he'd finally, finally got somewhere that was going to nurture him and cultivate him in this really amazing way and then he lost it or he lost part of it and that really fed in for me to that that fear and the narrative that a lot of young people that I've worked with have which is I'm just you know I'm bad and I've got bad luck and nothing right happens for me and and what fascinated me as I went along and watched it over the few times I've seen it 12, um, that he is is even having somebody an influence on you in such a minute period of time powerful enough to pivot your life which in turn often makes me really think about small interventions so it really made me think about the influence of people in a short-term space yeah although I would then worry that if Ricky hadn't have found his new home after this, if he had ended up in juvie, I'm not sure how well Bella's short intervention would have lasted. It was the fact that actually there were more people. It was going to be all right. Heck had turned quite a massive corner in, in his haiku at the end where he basically says, you know, me and this fat kid, uh, we ran, we ate, read books and it was the best and 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 this is the thing and and Ricky gets to feel that he actually he's given something back to heck he reads to him he nurtures him and I think in so doing is kind of is nurturing the child in himself as well so actually there is still that topsy-turvy idea of who's the responsible adult and who's the child in all of this because when Heck breaks his leg or damages his leg, Ricky, in fact, there's, a, there's almost a transition when he steps from being the child to nurturing. Um, and, and he definitely, you know, he, he's like, right, okay, I've got this. And he steps into that man role and he steps into, you know, and he's a child. So, yeah, you're right. There is a concern. And I do worry a lot about young people who have had trauma. They never really get to experience being a child. Mm. Um, and how then they learn to process their emotions because they don't really have that transition from childhood to adulthood it's yeah um and and then there's always that yearning there's always often those behaviors that come out which is the child self just desperate to still be heard isn't it and this is the thing isn't it as well is that that actually you can gain that resilience you can you can find other people as you get older and and even as an adult not least as a 13 year old boy, 
you can find people who can give you that anchor that you need to then start to redefine yourself and develop your own your own beliefs your own labels you mentioned the haiku at the end and and that was the other thing that I, I thought was really wonderful, that somebody had taught him to use haikus to express his anger. Yes. Gosh, yes, I can't believe we haven't talked about that. And he's taught heck that, which is, I think, one of the most powerful things you can, you can give a child. The most powerful gift you can give a child is to have a child teach you something. I yeah. think that that is the most amazing thing. And, and he gets to do that. And there is, so there has been someone, there was someone out there in Ricky's life before Bella who gave him something that he's brought with him and that helped him yeah he's he's developed these coping strategies all along you know and and some will be helpful and some won't but then like you say he passed those coping strategies and those skills on to to heck so there is almost i suppose one way you could look at it is there's the parallel between heck and and ricky but at different ages i will highly recommend this um, both for people who have an interest in psychology and for people who don't. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, a fantastic film, a majestical film. And um, I will say thank you very much, Kendall. Oh, good luck with it. I think this is an amazing idea. You've been listening to Analyze This, mental health and film and TV. I'm Dr. Boo. My guest today was Kendall Bond, and we were discussing Hunt for the Wilder People. Music by Joseph McDade. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed listening. Please subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. Leave us with some feedback. We hope you join us again next time.